Yeah, exactly. So it got so bad that in uh, the late 80s, people were getting attacked by wolves in these villages. Was it people as well as our livestock? Yeah, and this is so people would be going to their outhouses at night and get attacked on their way to go take a shit. <laughs> that's the worst. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> Not dude. only do you have to leave your warm house to go and take a dump, yeah. A wolf's also going to eat you. Yeah, and if it's winter, I mean, it's, you know, like when I was there in the winter, it's negative 28 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Got to make yeah. sure your ass doesn't get stuck to the toilet seat. Yeah, well, actually, so when you use the toilets there, and you look down in the hole, yeah. there are these frozen pillars of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead serious. Welcome to the Interwilderness Podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace. This is episode 224. A modern huntsman production. Now, I promise that the rest of our conversation isn't quite as silly as that, uh, but it is an incredible show. And what a what a conversation I had with Luke. He was with me for a couple of days. Uh, we recorded that right before he left on a trip. Uh, as you can tell from the intro, it is about wolves. It's about mountains. It's about adventure. And that's all I'm going to say in the intro because you're about to hear all about it. Um, Luke is a friend, an incredibly talented photographer and writer, and if you want to read the work that he has already published and printed in Modern Huntsman, you can uh, go on the website and check out Volume 7. That is where you can read that. I am currently packing my bags. In fact, my office is in a bit of chaos right now because I am 10 days away from heading back to Namibia to do the pickup shots for my film, Paid in Blood, if you want to watch the trailer for that. And if you would like to support the film and help um, fund the post-production, the film I'm hoping is going to be wrapped and out sometime in the summer, June, July. Uh, Head over to my website, byronpace.com, look up films, Paid in Blood. There is a teaser and there is a trailer there and there's all the information about the film this incredible relocation of elephants that we did from drought-stricken Namibia to the Democratic Republic of Congo and the amazing life story of Aneta Olofsson. So that's what's on the cards for me in the next couple of weeks uh, before getting really back into the the groove with the next volume of Modern Huntsman. In fact, we're working on it right now. I have uh, one of the stories up on my computer, on my desk, as I record this. Uh, it's it's all go. We've got some incredible stories in the next volume, volume 11, which you're going to see sometime in the summer. And if you want to keep up to date with everything that we're doing at Modern Huntsman, the best place for that is probably head over to Instagram. If you don't use Instagram, check out the website. There's new content uh, being loaded on there all the time. Uh, But importantly, you can subscribe to the website. Uh, We don't bombard you with a lot of shit. Uh, We only really contact people when there's something worthy of putting in front of your eyes. Uh, So uh, yeah, hit hit subscribe or put your email address and hit subscribe on the website modernhuntsman.com. And the last thing for me to do before we get into this conversation with Luke, which, by the way, is going to be two parts. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, It was a long conversation. We spoke for two hours. And I know that when you get to the end of this hour, you're going to be like, well, why the hell have you not just released this as two hours? This is incredible. Um, Well, tough uh, is the answer to that. Uh, So you're going to hear the second part of this in two weeks' time. Uh, so you're you're not going to want to miss it because I know how the <laughs> I know how uh, how this hour long ends, and uh, there's just so much more to hear from Luke. Uh, but the last thing I need to say is a thank you to uh, this week's Patreon supporters. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. You can have a look at the tiers. You can see how you can support and make these shows possible. But the top tier of 
Patreon supporters this week include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Asher Stalking, Dick Ekstrom, Mark Zabrowski, and Leslie Cumming. Thank you so much for all of your support. Uh, you're part of the reason that I am able to put these shows out every two weeks. And without further ado, Luke Oppenheimer. Luke, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm so happy to be doing a podcast in person <laughs> because it's been a long time since I, so many of the podcasts I do now are remote. Yeah. But we're sitting in my lounge in Scotland. Here You're going are. to a much cooler place than Scotland tomorrow. <laughs> Where are you off to? I am uh, returning to Kyrgyzstan. I've been going there for about four years. Um, so I'll be I'll be flying to Istanbul tomorrow, and then from Istanbul I'll continue on to uh, Bishkek, which is the capital. Uh, I think it's probably important to give people a little bit of context because there will be many people on this podcast who have never heard of Kyrgyzstan before. <laughs> There's like, which Stan country is it that you're saying? Yeah. So, so some global context, <laughs> I think, would be really useful. Okay. So if you were to look at a map, you know, you have Russia. And right below that, you'll have Kazakhstan. And so Kyrgyzstan is very small. It's probably, you know, similar in size to my state, which is Oklahoma, my home state. And... Um, so it's nestled between Kazakhstan to the northwest. You have China um, to the basically the whole eastern side of the country. And then directly below that, you have Tajikistan. And then to the southwest, you have Uzbekistan. Okay. And so it's actually quite close to Afghanistan then mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And... I, I almost like don't know where to start here because we've talked about so many things <laughs> yeah. over the last few days. Most the most exciting of which was about two hours ago when I sat playing with Luke's medium format camera, <laughs> taking pictures outside and wasting his film. <laughs> um, but we'll get to that in a bit. Where? Um, how did you connect with Modern Huntsman to begin with? Because I think the first thing we, we should talk about for context is. Um, the story, because this was my first interaction with you, yeah. was the story that you wrote in Volume 7, which was the water volume, back when we um, did themes for a volume. Mm-hmm. But how did you make the connect? I'm guessing it was through Tyler, was it? It was through Tyler. Yeah, yeah it was through Tyler Sharp. So, um, His ears will be burning. I, <laughs> I had um, already shot um, you know, my, the, the wolf project in Kyrgyzstan. So, as you know, it was about the village of Otuk, which has about 800 people, and they have a massive wolf problem. So, these wolves come every year, eat about 100 horses a year. And 100 horses a year? Yes. That yeah. seems an insane amount. A it horse is, is a it, big animal. It is, but they, it's Kyrgyzstan. They what got do they a lot use the horses for? So, they use them uh, you know, for their own shepherding. Mm-hmm. Um, they're mostly uh, herding sheep up in the mountains. Um, as well as yak and uh, goats, but they also eat them. Okay, so they're of, a food source. Too. Yes, absolutely, and it's delicious. By the yeah, way, horses. Yeah, good. it's so good. <laughs> I've eaten a lot of horses. <laughs> yeah. So these um, these wolves come and uh, yeah, they eat uh, a bunch of horses a year, countless sheep. You know, God knows how many sheep uh, and yaks, and occasionally uh, cows as well. And they got they got cows up there. Um, so where so. These villages that you're talking about, yeah. where where are they in the country? Are we talking up in the mountains? 
They're yeah, they're high up in the the Tian Shan Mountains. Mm-hmm. So that's the same mountain range that runs into China. It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so basically, all of Kyrgyzstan is covered in the Tian Shan Mountains. Okay. Yeah. When you go to the south, uh, it kind of flattens out a bit, and uh, you have these like really big expanses of uh, agriculturally viable land. Small percentage of the country is like that. The rest is, uh, you know, just completely montane. Um, so it looks like it's just a fantastical landscape, and it's very sublime. Mm. You feel tiny. You feel insignificant, and that's why I love it. But to I, get can, back, I can relate a little just from the time in Tajikistan. I had a similar, similar vibe. It's going to be very similar. Yeah, yeah similar topography for sure. Um, so I had, you know, been working on that project. I sp- stayed uh, about three weeks in the village of Otuk, went up in the mountains with the villagers when they go and try and hunt these wolves. Okay. What time of year is this? This is February. Okay. And, and you, just to backtrack a second, you mm-hmm. said that it happens every year. So is it a particular time of year that it's a problem? It's, it's, it's a pretty much a problem year round. Okay. Um, however, the, uh, the, the wolves definitely, they're, doing more of their predation on the on the horses and other livestock during the winter. Okay, that would make sense. Less food around. Exactly. Yeah. And it's also easier, uh, in a sense, to hunt them in the winter. because Hunt, you, hunt the wolves. In hunt the, the wolves okay. in the winter because you can follow their tracks easier. So they'll come down to these valleys, um, eat loads of livestock and horses, and then they uh, are running through deep snow all the way up into the mountains again, um, and it they leave you know these very fresh tracks, and so you can follow them. Um, yeah. So, how did you find out about this story? I so I because I know from spending a bit of time yeah. with you that we're very like-minded in the in the I was going to say desire, but it's more than desire: the need, the requirement for our souls <laughs> to adventure and explore. And storytell around things that are meaningful and also stories that people don't know. Mm-hmm. But this is like, this is so out there. Like, how on earth did you find out? Let's see. I, it, was, it, was, it was towards the end of 2020. I was in lockdown, you know. Oh, in, right. Yeah. And so I, because I, I shot this project February of 2021. So it was towards I'd the end of 2020. This was during all the COVID, it, <laughs> COVID, COVID chaos. It was during all of that. And yeah. so I was, you know, locked away in, uh, this uh, my apartment in Manhattan, and poor thing. Uh, it's terrible, man. That was <laughs> <laughs> <That's> so <depressing. laughs> yeah. So at least te- I it was could, horrible. when I was here. At least I could walk out outside. Yeah, and not give a shit. No, it was uh, just the worst, man. Um, so I, you know, I have a friend that I work with. Um, he's my fixer. He's also my good friend. His name is uh, Ruslan, and um, I've been working with him for about four years now. And he, you know, like he's a mountain guide. He survives off of the tourism. Okay. And he called me. He's like, Luca, when are you coming back? You know, I, uh, I need like something to do. Nobody's coming here. Um, you know, I'm having trouble earning money. Do you know of anybody who might be coming? I was like, no, Ruslan, I don't know of anybody else who goes to Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> I'm like the only one I know who goes there. Uh, and I, but I told him, I said, look, um, you know, uh, I can help you out though. You know, you, you need the economic help. Um, if you do research for me. Mm-hmm. So I said, let's, 
start thinking of stories. Oh, wow. So yeah. that's how that came about. That's how it came about. That's so cool. Yeah, so I was, I was paying him monthly to go around the country. he's living there. Yeah. Okay. So I was paying him monthly to research different topics. Jeez, dude. I didn't realize that, like, because yeah. that's like, it's a commitment all around. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I love that. Yeah. And so I, I asked him, I said, hey, uh, you know, by the way, uh, do you know of any kind of hunting that's being done there besides eagle hunting? Because that's been yeah. done and done. Many times, you know, in as many cool countries. as it is, yeah. like that's that's been done enough. Been, I don't that, need that, to go and that, do that. Oh, that yeah. horse is being flogged, <laughs> yeah, to death. And so he was like, "Okay, Luca, you know, I'll go, I'll go check it out." And uh, about two weeks after that conversation, he came back and he said, "Oh, I think I found something really interesting. There's this village. They have a massive wolf problem. They're losing tons of horses every year." Um, would that interest you? And I said, like, hell yeah, that is right up my alley. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay, um, I'm going to come up with some questions uh, that you can ask these hunters and everything. So I made a huge list of questions. Um, he got on a bus, went back, talked to these guys, took photos with them and stuff, you know, and uh, then, uh, you know, we, we touched base again. Yeah. About like another week later, maybe two weeks later. Um, and I realized like how dire their situation was okay. and how hardcore the, the, the whole activity of going and hunting the horse, the, the, the wolves was. Um, and I said, okay, um, I have time. I can afford to go there. I'm coming. Yeah. And that was basically it. Okay. Um, um, I did some basic preparation it was the last minute I decided to take my medium format film camera. So you weren't going to take that? I was going to take my my Sony, my digital Just camera. Just digital. And yeah, so I... I am so pleased that you took the medium <laughs> Oh, format. I know. It's the, it's the best decision I've made yeah. in uh, probably my whole life. We're sitting here in the lounge right now and he's got this giant orange belly case <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, open. And we were... He was... I, I've had never played with a medium format before and so we've been, we were playing with it a couple of hours ago and it is it's it's a whole world of uh, it's a whole world of preparation to just click the button to take the picture that I had no idea and that's going to be relevant as we dive deeper into the story when you hear about the kind of stuff that Luke got but yeah there's a lot of camera gear and a shitload of film sitting <laughs> in my lounge here <laughs> so why did you why did you think I, I'm not just going to take my digital yeah, because so that was, would be the easy option, definitely. It was because of one image that I had taken before. So I have a, a neighbor out in Oklahoma. He lives uh, next to our, our family farm, and his name is Ron. Oh, you showed me this picture. I showed last you night. this picture, yeah. and um, that was one of the first portraits that I took with the uh, RZ67, the medium format camera. And I remember getting that, uh, getting a darkroom print back from the lab because I, I don't have a darkroom set up myself unfortunately at the moment so I used the lab it got this print back from them and this is a month before I left for Kyrgyzstan mm. about I saw this and I was like this is not you cannot do do this you cannot achieve uh, this kind of image with a, a digital camera you just can't and I said I, I think, try. I, think I ought to bring my film camera. And I asked another friend of mine who's a big film photographer. His name is uh, Alexei Yurinev. Um, we went to the same photography school together. I talked to him about it. I was showing him the images and he was like, oh yeah. He was like, dude, you, you have to bring your film camera. And I was like, man, it's going to be such a pain in the ass. And, you know, I've traveled with film a bunch before. And he's like, 
Luke. He's like, you know, if it's <laughs> if it's worth doing, it's you got to do it doing. right. You Are know, you're gonna go all the way to Kyrgyzstan to tell a story yeah. about wolves <laughs> ravaging local villages. Take your medium format. Yeah, that's the moral of this story. Right, the podcast done. That's all you needed. To yeah. Know. <laughs> so that yeah, that, so there's a like a five minute conversation with my buddy, and uh, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna do it this way, yeah. and thank God I did. Really. So you flew out there. I flew out with there. all your gear. Mm-hmm. Your buddy who was doing the research picked you up. Yeah, so um, he picked me up at the airport. We I spent a few days uh, in town with his family. Slept in their their apartment with him and his his whole family in a small you know communist era apartment. And got over my jet lag, and then a few days later, so maybe I was I was in Bishkek for about five days. Rented a Jeep. I went and rented a Jeep, and then we hit the road. We drove uh, six and a half hours to Otuk through the mountains. And I'm imagining... Got to the village at sundown. I'm picturing these roads in my head. Are they pretty shit? You know, are these sur- actually not bad? They're surprisingly not bad, because you got old Soviet roads. The Soviets came in and built pretty sweet highways, and now the Chinese are building well, a the- lot of roads. A lot of the roads that I was on in Tajikistan were really good. Yeah. because the Chinese had just built them. That's the same. Any road that went to China, mm-hmm. pretty much, was great. China has done a lot of infrastructural development yeah. in Kyrgyzstan. It's Why? all part of their soul. Why is the question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing's yeah. free. And no, nothing, nothing is, is free. free. But that's another story. <laughs> yeah, that's another story. I'll, I'll go and tell that story maybe someday. Um, yeah, so we got into the, the village at sundown and had a big village meeting with the, you know, the village elder. All the guys. What was that like? It was. Was it in like a big building or like a small hut? Or no, it was in his, in his house that was actually up on a bluff overlooking the whole village, Good. which is really cool because you can see the whole village then at night, and it was every man in the village was there, and so which is um, how, which is which uh, is how many people? So I mean, it seemed like there were probably I mean not every man in the village, but there were probably forty five, fifty, uh, men there, and it was me. My fixer, Ruslan, uh, some of the hunters, the main hunters of the village, and um, uh, Altenbeck, who is the uh, kind of the main village guy uh, at this table, and like everybody else just standing, you know, we're sitting, and everybody else is in this room standing, just staring at you. Um, and he proceeded to tell me the history of the wolf problem. Okay. Yeah. And that's... Okay. And the history of the wolf problem is in itself fascinating. Yeah. Because that, now this is where you basically picked up the conversation with me and Tyler on mm-hmm. a phone call, having come back. Yeah. And you were telling us about the stories, like, do you want to run this story? Yeah. And this is the bit that I remember the most from that initial discussion was you telling me the history before all the cool stuff that you ended up doing and capturing after. So you dig into that history a little bit. Okay. So. You know, this is in in Kyrgyzstan. It's hard to get. Um, it's hard to know. Mm-hmm. You know, if the information is accurate, that's just how it is. And so, what I was, what I've been told by everybody in these villages is that in the mid '80s, around '84, um, the so the Russians, the Soviet Union, um, introduced. A different breed, a different like a different subspecies of wolf, into Kyrgyzstan to help clean up dead livestock because they had 
Because they'd wiped out the wolves before that, right? Or they'd reduced the wolf population? They'd reduced the, wolf, the native wolf population before, the Kyrgyz wolves. And so the, the story is that, you know, you had these collective farms um, and, you know, massive, uh, you know, sheep uh, operations and then a bunch of dead livestock. And um, they were worried about, you know, disease that's spreading to the other sheep and everything. And so they wanted some, they wanted more wolves then to come in and clean up the dead livestock. And Those so, wolves are well known for only cleaning up dead livestock. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, as this, the, as the story goes, the Russian wolves mated with the native Kyrgyz wolves and um, produced somewhat of a hybrid. You know, even though they're the same species, yeah. but they're like... Some but their environmental conditions with which they developed are very different. Yeah, very different. And they were bigger in Russia. Yeah, because these are like Siberian wolves. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so the, the new, you know, quote-unquote hybrid wolf um, produced bigger litters, mm-hmm. you know, up to like six pups, some of, some of them like per year, and uh, were a little bit bigger and definitely more aggressive. And so the wolf population exploded as of like after 1984. Okay. So it's not that long ago, really. No. no Do, were you recent. able to find any evidence of relocations taking a lot of the, of the Russians actually doing this? No. But it's a story you heard repeated. It's a story I heard repeated. I had asked people in the forestry department and they're like, I, they're like, I don't know, but this is what I've heard too. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, but now, you know, I'm working with the uh, Snow Leopard Foundation of Kyrgyzstan, okay. and those guys have good data. Okay. So, so this is where you're going on. And this now. is, now I'm going to talk to them. Okay. It might so be put, a whole, a pin in, put a pin in that, it might and when be a you come back story. on the podcast, and uh, I'll write the next installment of this, there might be an update on it. Yeah. yeah. We'll see what happens. So <laughs> Maybe there were genetically modified wolves. Maybe there's more to this. Yeah, some cold cold <laughs> war know, experiment. Talking shit now. <laughs> <laughs> That'd but, be awesome if that's the story. <laughs> that um, but but the the end of result of that is that there were there were more wolves post this like late nineteen eighties than there had been previously. Yeah, and they were starting to see an impact on their way of life. I suppose. Yeah, exactly. So it got so bad that in uh, the late eighties, people were getting attacked by wolves in these villages. Oh, so people as well as their livestock. Yeah, and this is so people would be going to their outhouses at night and get attacked on their way to go take a shit. <laughs> God, that's the worst. <laughs> oh, it's the worst. <laughs> Not dude. only do you have to leave your warm house to go and take a dump. Yeah, a wolf's also going to eat you. Yeah, and if it's winter, I mean, it's you know, like when I was there in the winter, it's negative twenty eight degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Make sure your ass doesn't get stuck to the toilet seat. Yeah, well, actually, so when you use the toilets there and you look down in the hole, yeah, there are these frozen pillars of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead serious, man. It's the damnedest thing. It's actually they just pretty like impressive. Get and then freeze. Yeah, because everybody's aim, I guess, is pretty similar. <laughs> As there's these frozen pillars of shit, and um, I think that deserves yeah. a picture. I got it. I'll, I'll go take a picture. <laughs> I need a picture yeah. Of this. <laughs> Anyway, lowering the tone here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so people were even being attacked. Yeah. So people um, were getting attacked, and that's uh, that's something that you know a lot of people in the village had told me about. Um, and they weren't able to go up and hunt the wolves at that time because they were the wolves were in 
what's known as the Red Book during the communist era, which is the Protected Animals Book. And it wasn't until, uh, I'll have to check again, is is either, you know, 92 or 93, after the fall of the Soviet Union, yep. that 90, all of these... 92 was a fall, yeah. Yeah. So, like, maybe 93 or something, um, you know, a lot of these villages petitioned to the government in Bishkek to allow them to hunt the wolves. Which is now an independent state. Which is now an independent state, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the Republic of Kyrgyzstan. So, then they, they started organizing, you know, these hunting groups... In in Otuk, it's only, you know, about like eight guys that regularly go up. So it's not many. No. Okay. It's very few. Because it's, it's absolutely, it's absolutely miserable conditions. You know, it's, it's dead of winter. You're waking up, you know, four or five a.m. before the sun comes up. Um, you know, I had a, a beard grown out at the time. And as soon as I step out, you know, your beard freezes. Any moisture in your beard, it just icicles. Um, you breathe in through your nose, little icicles form in your nostrils. <laughs> your nostrils. It is cold. It is Jeez. cold. So you just bundle yourself up, cover your face the best you can. And then you're getting on horseback and you're going up in the mountains, you know, hour, hour and a half of riding uh, up until you get into the, like the saddles and you're down, you're looking down into valleys then. So you're trying to get up pretty high to these mountain passes. Um, and you're just freezing the whole time. The wind is howling, especially when the sun it's starts coming up. No, no, it's very tough. This isn't like a safari horseback ride. No, it's not glamping. <laughs> no. Um, so, you know, naturally, a lot of people don't want to do it. And, yeah. you know, apart from the hunting, you know, they're still shepherds. They're up in those mountains anyways. Mm-hmm. And so when it's extra time, extra work, extra calories for their horses, it's a real tax on them. It's very cost. taxing, yeah. Um, one of these uh, hunters had told me, he said, you know, one one full day of hunting, you know, when we go out for like 12 hours, he said that's equivalent to a whole week's worth of calories for that horse. Wow. Because they're up to their chest in some of that snow a lot of times. They go out after a fresh uh, snow, which oftentimes they do. Yep. Um, it requires just an immense amount of energy. So these horses these must horses. be amazing. They're yeah, they're really strong, stocky little mountain ponies. Huh. Yeah, they're not big, but they're all muscle. Yeah, they're, they're sturdy. Yeah. So when they so when eventually they got the permission to go and kill wolves, mm-hmm. obviously the government at the time realized that there was a problem, and so that's why they had to change it. Yeah. Um, in terms of how these villages up there function, and the importance of the horses and the cattle and that to their livelihood, just. Explain that. Like, what is it like being there, mm-hmm. and what the the homes are like? I'm, I'm, I want to paint a a picture for everybody of how important it is that they have this livestock and and it is their their uh, their lifeblood. Mm-hmm. So you know, essentially, in these villages, everybody's a shepherd, and you know, maybe uh, you know, a shepherd's wife might teach in the local school or. Uh, you know, somebody might also have a, have a second job as, you know, teaching in the gymnasium. They all, almost every village in Kyrgyzstan seems to have a wrestling gymnasium. Yeah. Yeah. They're very big on that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Do um, you wrestle when you go? I've had to wrestle some guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they'll be like, you look strong, you know, wrestling. Oh, they want to yeah. play? Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the time. It's okay. great. Are they quite, like, aggressive with it? Yeah, but it's it's in good spirit. It is. In good yeah. Spirit. Yeah. They're just like... You know that's how they that's how they bond. Okay, 
<laughs> no, that's how they bond. They'll want to arm wrestle you or like, you know, actually wrestle you. That's how it was when I lived with the nomads. <laughs> they're like awesome. Yeah. They're like, oh, you look strong, wrestle my cousin, you know? <laughs> strong like bull. Yeah. Wrestle <laughs> <laughs> my cousin. Yeah. No, really. It's like you guys. It's just entertainment. It, yeah, they're like, oh, you're the same height, wrestle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like court jester. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's hilarious. Um, no, so uh, the the livestock, is the, it's the main income. It's basically the only income okay. for these villages. Um and so, you know, some of these guys, they'll have, uh, you know, 30 horses, 40 horses, and then a lot of different sheep. Um, and they're out there every day, you know, uh, tending to their, their flocks up in the mountains every day, every single day. And that meat, it either goes, uh, it's either for local consumption, it goes to the cities, you have Bishkek, it's the capital, main city, Osh, another big city. So there is a, there's quite a trade. Yeah. So it's not just between villages. No. So it, it's also, you know, it will go to their, their cities for their own domestic consumption, or it's going to Russia, or it's going to Turkey. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that is their, really their only income. So when they're losing 100 horses and however many countless sheep, that is, that's their livelihood, and that could be the difference between eating well that year or not. Yeah. And... So for Otuk, you know, based on the numbers they were giving me, um, they were saying that it's about 46% of their village's, like, yearly, like, net worth. 46% has been consumed by the wolves? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's what they're telling me. And this is, these are numbers that I have to verify mm. um, with the, the Snow Leopard Foundation, which I just got in contact with. But they go village to village, house to house, and actually collect data yeah Yeah. i I mean yeah it'd be interesting because it's not like they're saying that to try and be allowed to kill wolves they're already allowed to do it yeah Hmm. okay yeah it's a big deal it's a big deal it's a huge problem there's um a a guy in the village who's the youngest hunter that i met his name was also ruslan different ruslan not my fixer and uh, so he's from otuk and he's considered the best shot in the village okay. he was 35 years old at the time so now he's 37 and he gets paid by villages to go like so other villages in Kyrgyzstan he gets paid to go shoot wolves mm-hmm. and he told me like oh sometimes you know I'm going and uh, I'll shoot you know 25 or 35 wolves in like a in like two weeks wow yeah and he does that all over Kyrgyzstan well, what's he using uh, he has a um, uh, an SVD, which they call uh, like a Dragonov. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So old Soviet. Oh, so he's got some Soviet era sniper rifle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, and um, a lot of these guys will have homemade rifles. Yeah. Yeah, and they're breakover action. Yeah, and they're literally held together by you know tape and bailing wire. I don't want to fire one of those. No. <laughs> no I'm not playing that game. And um, another thing that's really impressive is some of these rifles that they have, some of these old Soviet rifles that they're using, are you know decommissioned by the military, and they've had the rifling drill, drilled, out. drilled out. 
So it's just a smooth bore, like a shotgun. Just, yeah, basically just a semi-automatic musket. <laughs> so some of and, those some of those rifles are like that. I think the one that Ruslan was using was a, a proper, yeah. you know, rifled SVD, and he has a special permit for it because he's in, you know, varmint control. Okay. Yeah. I can't imagine that those dr- <laughs> drilled out rifles shoot particularly well. Well, you know, they're not when it, on on these hunts. You know, it's not the way we do it, where you know, uh, you know, like when we go hunt white-tailed deer or something, and you're really like, you know, zeroing in, you're taking a shot, and it's one guy shooting at a time. It's a military operation up in these mountains. So, for example, on the hunt where you know we ended up killing a wolf, we split up into two groups, all of us on horseback, and we had guys from the next village over um, come up. So all together, I think there were about ten of us. So we had two groups of five, more or less, as I recall. And half of them went into the, the, the wall of a valley, like the end of a valley, where there's like a U, and it goes up into a hillside. And they set up a, like a, a U-shaped ambush. We came around the other side of the mouth of the valley where you know they had spotted a wolf. We drove that wolf into the ambush. So basically, they're running into these, you know, firing squads. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. I actually saw, you've just reminded me, um, I saw a wolf when I was in Tajikistan. Really? How, yeah, bi- how like big was it? 20 meters from me. Oh, damn. It was yeah. light colored, like the one that's in the photo that mm-hmm. you took. And it was the last day I was there. <clears throat> we were hunting um, Ibex. And we're just sitting in the bottom of this valley, freezing, because the, the sun comes into those steep valleys so late, being very quiet, looking, looking, waiting to see a, suit, a suitable Ibex come out. And then one of the guides there like, tapped me on the shoulder and pointed with his finger like very gently. And right behind, I mean, the, the valley bottom was probably only 50 meters wide anyway, and we were sitting in the middle of the valley bottom beside the stream, and then it just went quite steep up both sides. And this wolf just casually walked behind us, higher than us, maybe 15 meters higher than we were across some, um, like the cliff face, mm-hmm. where there was obviously a bit of a game trail. Just walked past us, stopped for like two seconds, looked at us, knew that we were looking at it, and then just slowly slinked away. Into <laughs> and it was, like, I didn't have enough. To, I saw it for all of maybe like less than 10 seconds. Seven or eight seconds in total, um, so not enough time for me to grab a ca- like lift a camera yeah. or anything. And also, I was trying. I mean, I was thinking it in my brain. I was thinking I got to get to my camera, but by the time I'd thought of that and thought of being careful and slow, it was too late. It was gone. But <clears throat> that was my closest encounter ever with a wolf. Wow! And it was there's something like there's some deep seated part of our primitive selves that makes you feel if i felt something that i've never felt before and it's mm-hmm. i've been around lots of big predators as close as that but definitely something about a wolf that i hadn't experienced before and it was very cool like not fr- not frightened yeah. i wasn't like t- like sitting there terrified i was more in awe like this mutual respect of predators or something i don't know it well, was you strange g- you got to you know think about it like you know, since our time is being, you know, hunter gatherers mm-hmm. for who knows how many tens and, you know, a hundred thousand years, whatever, um, we have 
cohabitated with wolves. Yeah. You know, we've been in competition with wolves. And we've been carrying out lifestyles uh, very similar, like parallels to wolves. Hunting in these parties, the extended kinship groups. You know, we had our own packs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, that's how we ended up domesticating dogs. And we were sharing the same territory. Sharing, you know, going after the same prey. You know, so it's it's weird. You know, we're in uh, fierce competition with this particular species, but then there's a, a odd kinship too. I think, yeah, because definitely. you have this uh, the same struggle of being, you know, predators. You know, out there and They're incredible. going after the same thing. Yeah, utterly incredible. So tell me about the um, tell me about building the relationships in the village because, like you and I have talked about this a bit with when it comes to storytelling mm-hmm. and the importance of creating trust yeah to really understand people and the people more broadly as like a community and then being actually allowed to go or being invited to go with them on the hunts like what was that like that process like because one thing that i and it's it's so hard to avoid with busy lives and running businesses etc to not be a parachute journalist Mm -hmm. and go in and then fuck off after a week and feel like you've like I see you see it all the time. Like, yeah. Even amongst like well respected people in there, you see it all the time, and it frustrates hell on me. But I also equally, some of those people don't care. Um, but equally, I understand it because life goes on. We're all busy. But it's very rare to have the privilege of spending a long extended time with mm-hmm. people to understand them, and that is when you really get the stories. Yeah. So, you know, instead of uh, approaching. Um, you know, the, the villagers of Otuk, these guys I ended up spending so much time with, um, instead of presenting myself and approaching them as a photographer, um, I introduced myself as a fellow hunter nice. and I made sure I had loads of photos of like bow hunting in Oklahoma mm-hmm. and, you know, all the, like white tailed deer, all this stuff. And, you know, the farm I grew up on, our landscape, uh, on my phone when I went there so I could, you know, show them, you know, where I'm coming from. And they'd be like, oh, he's also a hunter. It's very different than the way we hunt. Yeah. But th- that really, I mean, that was the, the probably the most important uh, part. Okay. And, Common and, bond. Yeah. And I even before I got there, you know, I was in communication with uh, uh, one of the hunters. His name is uh, Nadia. And so I was talking to Nadia through WhatsApp. It doesn't matter where you're on the world. Everybody has WhatsApp. <laughs> and, you know, I, I showed him some pictures of, like, deer and stuff. And, like, I was saying, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a photographer, but, like, I'm, I'm a hunter. Mostly, yeah. I said, I'm a, I'm a hunter. I love, you know, all kinds of hunting. I'm interested to see how you guys do it. And I'd love to, you know, spend time with you guys and go on these hunts with you. And um, so when I got there, when I actually met him, he greeted me in the village, on the outskirts of the village, when I pulled up. And it was, the sun was coming down. He met me on the side of the road outside of the village. And he said, it's so good to meet a hunter from the other side of the world. Awesome. And so I wasn't really coming, you know, I wasn't presenting myself just as a photographer. I was like, no, I'm another hunter, you know, and I love doing this, this kind of stuff too, hmm. you know. Because, I mean, for them, obviously, it's a chore. It's a job. I don't have to go out and kill white-tailed deer with my bow. Yeah. <laughs> That's a luxury. Um but even though it's like it's a job for them, they love it. They absolutely love it. Okay. Yeah. They, they talk to any of them. They say, "Dude, I just I love the freedom. Yeah, I love being up in the mountains and the pursuit 
It's a lot so more. There's a lot mo- of commonality. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot more exciting than driving sheep. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, wh- how long did it take before you went out on your first hunt? Let's see. Um, we went out on our first hunt, I believe, on actually the third day. Mm. I was there. Third day I was there, and it was a pretty mellow um, little expedition we did up in the mountains, mostly looking for tracks, and they just wanted to show me around, you know, show me the the landscape that they're in. Um, But, you know, we were still out um, from sunrise to sunset, and so it was a long day of riding. I hadn't been riding in, you know, maybe like two years. I hadn't been on a horse in like two years. So you couldn't walk the next day? Oh man, I was so sore. <laughs> you know, I, I I grew up riding horses and everything, but you know, if you're off a horse for, you know, that long, then you're going to be really sore. And I was. Um, I didn't think I'd be able to walk for a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have not had the practice. No, it was rough. Uh, by the time we went on our, our second hunt, I was still sore. <laughs> um, yeah. So like, uh, yeah, uh, third day I was there I think we went on our first hunt and you know I could tell I was like oh this is gonna be hardcore this is really tough it's just freezing you're completely you're always exposed you know you're getting sunburnt at the same time you're freezing you know so that's never fun um but we had you know all day up in the mountains uh stopped for our lunch which was uh uh just some kumis which is uh fermented horse milk which sound, is, that sounds gross. It's delicious. Is it good? I love it. <laughs> it's slightly alcoholic. Oh, really? Yeah, so if you drink it on an empty stomach, it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Does it taste like anything else? It, no. Is it, is it like cre- creamy like milk or? It's, uh, it can be, basically it's, it's you know, it's, it's kind of like milk. It has the same, uh, I'd say like viscosity as milk. Mm. Maybe a little bit more watery than milk. Has a smoky aftertaste. And it's a little bit sour. You're not selling it. You gotta try, I'll it. try it. You gotta try <laughs> it. Yeah. Oh man, like I, I didn't think I would like it when I when I first tried it years before that. Uh and I ended up loving it. Now I I love that stuff. Kumis. Yeah. And it keeps you warm. Okay. You drink that, it's like uh antifreeze. <laughs> um, <laughs> You'll need it out there. It's so and, freaking cold. Yeah, and then there's another uh drink that they have, it's called the uh, Bozo, and it's also like kind of a fermented grain. And that is, that's like really watery oatmeal. Mm-hmm. It's very thick. Okay. And that they actually, they, they, the Kyrgyz call that like Kyrgyz antifreeze. And so they drink that up in the mountains too. We also had that when we were on our lunch break. Um, yeah, but it definitely, uh, it definitely works. It definitely keeps you warm. And it's a lot of calories. So you going there to storytell, like what are you hoping? It's very clear, a huge amount of investment and time mm-hmm. going into even like before you step foot in the country. Photographer, writer, storyteller. What are you hoping to to gain in terms of the story that you can tell going in and then coming out again? Because this is this goes. This isn't just because you. you it's not. Ju- I know you do like being there a lot, mm-hmm. um, but it's not just because of that. You're doing it. There's a purpose to it. Like when you and I have talked about this a lot mm-hmm. about the the love of travel, but the love of travel and experiences 
but with purpose. Mm-hmm. Like, what were you going there, knowing what the basis of the story was? What did you hope to like tell the world, if you like, wherever that was going to end up? Obviously, it ended up in Modern Huntsman because that was the conversations that you had mm-hmm. with us when we came back. You know, going into it, my uh, main thought, and you know, mainly because I've been living in the U.S. again now for a few years, um, where everybody's obsessed with uh, social media, our lives are very digitized, we're always online, constantly being bombarded by um, sensory inputs. I wanted to remind people that there is this different world. It's much simpler. There's still, you know, people still have their own problems there, but it's much simpler and people, quite frankly, are much happier. And I wanted to be able to tell a story where, okay, there is this serious issue you know, there's these wolf attacks on people's livelihoods, but look how happy they are, you know? And that was clear to you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I had already spent a lot of time in Kyrgyzstan before I went on this trip, as I knew the reality of, you know, how village life is. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd spent, I'd already lived with nomads, you know, for a month. I'd lived in several different villages before. And so I, going into it, I was, you know, pretty sure I was like, well, I know, you know, how these Kyrgyz people are in these villages. They're pretty content. They got serious problems, but it's not a really complicated lifestyle. You know, it's not, uh, they're not overloaded with all of this bullshit, yeah. you know? <laughs> and they focus on what's important. They come home from a hard day of work. They're happy to be back with their family. They're happy that the house is warm. They're happy that there's food on the table. And they're happier about those things then most people are getting a you know massive bonus uh, working for working some corporate job you know in hmm. Manhattan absolutely they're happier every day coming home than most people yeah even though they're dead tired smell like horse shit <laughs> you know <laughs> they're absolutely they're they're very happy people um, so I wanted to be able to bring that world. Um, you know, to people in New York, where I was living at the time, where I'm soon moving from. Thank God. <laughs> and you and you thought you would do it in the most difficult format you could possibly pick in the world. Yeah. Apart from maybe <laughs> shooting it on like eight millimeter, um, like rolling film. I, I That's probably the only thing you could have done that was more difficult than what you did. I could have brought an eight by ten large format. I probably would have. Been yeah. There. No. This is true. Yeah. This is true. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Why? I mean, and I suppose I mean maybe maybe we need to press pause on on this story, and we, we can we mm-hmm. can pick up this kind of the takeaways and what the future looks like, and you going back now, yeah, to talk about the photography aspect sure. of it because I think that that feeds into this. When did you decide you wanted to be a photographer? Oh man, okay, I mean that goes so. <laughs> my my dad gave me a camera when I was fourteen years old. What was it? Uh, it was a Nikon D40. Is that digital? Yeah, it was a little digital camera. Um, couldn't even tell you how many megapixels it was. Maybe it was like, like twelve two or something. Yeah, like two, maybe like <laughs> I, yeah, maybe like twelve me- megapixels yeah. at the time. I have no idea. Um, yeah, because that was twenty years ago. Um, We're getting old, Luke. I know. <laughs> <laughs> don't yeah, don't let me know. Um, he gave me, yeah, he gave me a, a little digital camera because we went to Nicaragua. Um, he was involved in a lot of uh, philanthropy. He still is. 
Um, but we were working with a group that uh, was helping villagers uh, build a library, community library. So I went, started taking pictures. Basically was taking photos ever since then. But never seriously. It was just a hobby. Um, when I was 26 years old, I had been living in Asuncion, uh, Paraguay for two years. I was running a shipping company, which I've told you all about that. Um, as running a shipping company is extremely stressful. Um, I ended up, you know, getting out of that line of work, didn't know what to do, uh, with myself at that point. You know, I just wanted to, you know, I, I was just pursuing entrepreneurial endeavors throughout Latin America, uh, for four years at that point, first in Medellin, Colombia, and then in Asuncion, Paraguay. And I'd started you to ship some cool places. I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I was very much, you know, about adventure and everything. Um, but you know, I had the mindset of, okay, I need to, uh, do things that will make me money, need to pursue these, uh, careers that will make me money and I can make stable. So, you know, I ended up, uh, getting into the shipping industry. We were, um, doing a shipping logistics firm for cargo coming up the, uh, Rio Paraná, which is a big river comes up the side of, uh, Paraguay plugs into Brazil and uh, everybody I was around was miserable. Everybody I worked for who was older than me were miserable, functioning alcoholics, uh, divorced at least once, estranged from their kids. The people who are my age or younger than me that I was working with were on their way to being as miserable as those older people. And I was like, I do not want this. I don't care how much money I stand to make. It's not fucking worth it. I do not want this at all. Um, there are other complications that happened that had to do with black market activity. Being, you know, we, we got into competition with some unsavory people um, in Paraguay. And uh, I really had to leave then at one point. You know, we had... You didn't uh, want to suddenly find a gun in the back of your head. Yeah. I mean, peop <laughs> yeah. So, you know, because there were, were people that we knew in our sphere... Uh, who who did get murdered? You know, it was a wild west then. Paraguay had just opened up to uh, foreign investment. Business licenses were being handed out uh, left and right, and there's you know, it's, uh, don't want to offend any Paraguayans that might hear this, but it's a massively corrupt country. You know, it's 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 not that the system is corrupt; it's that corruption is the system. Okay. And uh, you know, so. You know, you want some competition taken out. A lot of times people, you know, resort to uh, very, very final means of doing that. And I, you know, did see that. I did hear about it. That was going on. And I was 26 years old. Uh, realized, I was like, I don't think this is the path I want to be on. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be a very good person if I stay on this path. Like, I don't, there's no way that my, uh, that this is good for your soul, you know? Um because we'd work really hard and we'd party really hard every weekend also, you know, and it just like, it did, it was not fulfilling. I was like, what is this even about? Mm -hmm. And it was scary. It was really scary. Um, there, you know, the last three weeks of me being in Paraguay, I slept in a different hotel, uh, every night. I owned an apartment. I had an apartment Jeez. and I was afraid to stay there, you know, cause we knew that there were like, uh, threats against us. Uh, you know, we were being followed. Probably smart to get out at that point. 
Yeah, so I got out. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I went back to Oklahoma. It's a quick way to have a heart attack. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you don't end up oh, dead. I mean, it took me it took me years to get over the the paranoia. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, it was it was uh I mean, it was crazier uh than I think I'm I'm letting on. Um but when I I got back to Oklahoma, felt like an absolute failure. You know, I was like, Cause man, you had to leave. Cuz I had to leave and uh you know, I was like, man, I maybe I'm just not cut out for that, you know, kind of stuff. And then my mom said, uh, she was like, Luke, you need to do something that's creative. You know, I was always, I was always drawing as a kid, my whole life, draw pen and ink stuff. Um, you know, painted a bit, uh, you know, all these creative pursuits. These are things that gave me a lot of pleasure growing up. I was also in my free time, I was reading all of these memoirs, uh, by journalists and even photojournalists. And that's what I was like uh, ingesting, just nonstop, couldn't get enough of it. All these very interesting stories, war correspondence, um, all this kind you. of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, a dang- that's a dangerous, <laughs> that's a dangerous yeah, tunnel to go it down. It is. Yeah. And my mom said, she was like, you know, why don't you. Uh, you know, get into photojournalism. Yeah. Read some and, Don McCullen and before you know it, you're on the front line. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm lucky I didn't go down that road, that road. I almost did. Um, and, um, yeah. So my mom said, why don't you be a photojournalist? And I said, oh, I didn't study that, you know? And anyways, I'm, I'm too old. I was 26. and I thought I was too old, you know? And she was like, well, that's, uh, really dumb. You're a baby still. Yeah. I didn't feel like it at the time. Um, I guess we never do. We never realize how young we are. And um, I was like, okay, you're right. And I was like, anyways, what else am I going to do? And I was like, this is the only thing I can see that would uh, that really excites me, that I think would be healthy, and that would bring me great pleasure. And I also felt, you know, at the time, like I was walking away from any economically comfortable lifestyle at the same time. <laughs> yeah. You know, because I was making good money in the shipping stuff. I mean, the, there's a lot of truth in that, yeah. yeah. And, the cre- and like creative industries in general. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I had, uh, you know, the amount of money that I'd made, um, you know, in the, the doing the shipping stuff in Paraguay. Um, and uh, I started, you know, thinking of projects I could shoot. Didn't know at all where to start. Um, I had heard about International Center of Photography in New York and decided, okay, I'm going to shoot a project, you know, or projects, plural, put together, you know, a portfolio, send it to them. And hopefully I can get into their one year intensive program so I can actually learn how to do any of this stuff. And, um, so I, I went and I, I shot in Tanzania for a, uh, an NGO that's called Mainsprings that was run by a friend of mine. He needed promotional material. Uh, they run a, uh, a girls' school for like kids that are you know grow up on the streets, and they take them in, house them, feed them, uh, teach them. It's it's you know prime. It's kindergarten, yeah, kindergarten uh, through high school, and these girls often go on to study at universities. It's very successful. It's a great uh, organization. But so my my friend who runs that, his name is Chris Gates. Um, he invited me to come down. And he said, oh, I need promotional material. Can you do, like, photos and video for us? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I did that. I was there for um, a month just shooting, you know, uh, the the school and everything, their activities, uh, doing little interviews for them. And I put together, like, a little promotional video for them as well. 
some of those photos I, you know, it was all I had. So some of those photos I put in my portfolio. Um, and then I decided, I was like, I need like a real story though. And I know of one. And it was back in Paraguay. And I was very, very scared to go back. And, uh, but I decided that it was worth it. So the story that I knew of in Paraguay, um, it was about this um, group of park rangers. But, uh, you know, a lot of them were, you know, hired guns, ex-military types, uh, who were working for a foundation called uh, Moises Bertoni Foundation, which runs a nature reserve that's um, over 60,000 hectares on the border of Brazil. So it's in northern Paraguay. And I knew that they did all these anti-poaching patrols, and I found that very exciting. It was very interesting to me. I knew one of the head guys, um, so I could get in touch with them, and I knew I could make that happen. And so I called him, and I said, uh, look, you know, Ramon, I, I want to come down. I'm, <laughs> he was so confused because he knew me as a shipping guy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, look, I, I'm, you know, I've changed my direction in life completely. Uh, I'm trying to uh, be a photojournalist. And I'd like to come and do a project about you and your, uh, your troops, you know, going on these patrols in the, in the forest. And he said, you know it's very dangerous for you to come back down here right now. Because he knew that we had been getting all these threats, me and my uh, business partners. And I said, yeah. And I said, but look, I'm not going to stay in Asuncion. I'm going to be there for one night, and I'll go with you. We'll go up to the nature reserve, and then I'll just be with you guys. And he's like, okay, if you do it that way, it's probably fine. He's like, but don't tell anybody else you're coming down. So I didn't. So I go down to uh, Asuncion, spend one night in the hotel. Actually, no, two nights in the hotel. Um meet with him, and he tells me, he says, look, you know, we have the poaching problem, that is an issue, but the real problem is drug trafficking. There's all this cocaine that's being, uh, you know, that's being exported from Brazil, it's coming through the rainforest reserve, because it's middle of nowhere, it's hard to patrol, there's no police out there, extremely rural, extremely isolated, and uh, it's being, you know, brought in from Brazil, through Paraguay into Argentina. Massive market for cocaine. Another thing is, there are people with massive uh, weed, like marijuana operations. They're growing it in the middle of these uh, of this rainforest reserve. And he said, that's the real problem that we have. Then he proceeded to show me a file of pictures that had all these, uh, these photos of bodies that they had found on the sides of roads. And it was people who were, you know, either they're, uh, competition from small gangs or they were people who were suspected of being rats you know and talking to uh, the police or whoever and it was really rough stuff I mean it was mutilated bodies and it was you know uh, quite a few photos it was a lot it was like dozens and he's like, he's like yeah here's the real problem do you still want to come and I was I said yeah absolutely I do and it was really, you know, it was uh, it was disturbing, of course, you know, but I also got very excited. 